2: is nick Barashev. he is the founder president and ceo of the bullion management group and we'll be talking about the subject of gold this hour welcome to the show nick
3: well my pleasure jordan
2: let's just start with a little bit of your background and uh what the bullion management group does
3: well um, i started this uh, project in 1998 and we're just about to uh Uh, celebrate our 10th anniversary because our first product, the BMG Bullion Fund, was uh, launched in 2002, and then subsequently we launched a a gold mutual fund as well as uh, the ability for high net worth investors to to buy individual bars of gold, silver, platinum, and and have them stored with the Bank of Nova Scotia here in Toronto.
2: Okay. Now, um, there's been a lot of attention uh, to gold. Gold's had an enormous rise the last decade or so. Uh, what does the rise in gold tell you about where the the uh, global economy is these days?
3: Well, as, as a broad generality, when, when gold is rising, that, that means that uh, investors, people all over the world, are losing confidence in their currencies and the management of their economies. Um, that's, that's the primary motivator whenever gold rises.
2: Now, in in many cases, the U.S. dollar, uh, even though we're printing a lot of them, has become a safety haven. I mean, you've seen that with uh, all the troubles in Europe recently, and when the more troubles there were in Europe, there might not be a Greek debt deal, the dollar goes up and people pour money into treasury bonds and pushing our interest rates down. Um, Is the dollar still the safety haven, or is the gold becoming more of the safety haven?
3: Well, I don't think the dollar ever was a, a safety haven. and It was uh, the the place to go in terms of a, a crisis. So what happens is is uh, when you have a problem, say, in Europe, uh, major investors, institutions, hedge funds, and so on, have to liquidate their euro-based investments, and, and really the only place to go short-term is the U.S. dollar because of the size of the U.S. Treasury market. And then after that's done... They they reallocate, so so you have a rise in the dollar, not because of any fundamental improvements in the the dollar, but it's it's because of this short-term flight. Um, So that's happened time and again, which seems to be an anomaly, but subsequently gold rises. If we look over the last 10 years, most currencies have have declined about 70 to 80% in purchasing power against gold just in the last 10 years. So you're saying short-term, that this is a short-term phenomenon in the dollar.
2: Why would that not continue for a long time?
3: Well, it may continue for, for a while yet because it's kind of like the, the U.S. is the, the best house in a bad neighborhood. When you look at around the world in terms of the, the economic conditions and the debt situation, whether it's you know Europe, Japan, the U.K. or the U.S., they're, they're all in pretty much the same position in terms of debt to GDP and what's happening to the economies. So what is it about gold?
2: uh, Because it just sits there. It doesn't really do anything as such. You can't, I mean, you could spend it kind of, but you couldn't go down to your local store and give them a gold bar particularly. What is it about gold that has uh, this kind of safety haven uh, element to it that you think the U.S. dollar does not have in the long run?
3: Well, if you look at the attributes of of money itself, and Alan Greenspan wrote, an article back in I think it was nineteen sixty eight and the attributes of money that it needs to be is a unit of account, um, as the you know preserver of wealth, and you know a method of exchange, so our currency you know does a unit of account and a method of exchange but but it falls dramatically short of you know preserver of wealth, and the reason for that is that the currencies um, you know, get get printed into oblivion. There hasn't been a single currency throughout all of history that hasn't ended in a hyperinflation followed by a complete collapse. Not one, ever.
2: So, are you saying it was a mistake uh, for the United States to go off the gold standard in 1971 under President Nixon?
3: Well, it it, it certainly looks that way because if you look at the chart of you know debt inflation. Various measures; they they start to increase dramatically from that point forward. Um, you know, gold acted as as a bit of a check on government spending, and when we consider that the the U.S. government debt in 1971 was something like 800 billion, and now we have a 1.5 trillion deficit a year, you can that's what happened. And as you create that amount of money. It's the currency that's losing value and, you know, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold.
2: So what is happening particularly in Europe? You have these countries, the so-called periphery countries like Greece and Portugal and Italy and Spain uh, that have taken on huge amounts of debt and are really not able to service them. Uh, How is that affecting the uh, outlook towards uh, precious metals, gold and silver and platinum?
3: Well, it's just people are losing, you know. Like in the in the, the euro was to be the uh, the alternative to the U.S. dollar, so now people are losing confidence in the, in the euro, and they're seeing what's happened. And, and then they look at the U.S. and the U.S. numbers, you know, are not dramatically different over those of Greece's. It's just a much larger economy, but the you know the debt to GDP ratios and so on. You take a look at um, in the in the U.S. you've got about fifteen a trillion in, in current national debt. But if you add unfunded liabilities like, you know, Medicare and, and Social Security, you get up to about $117 trillion, and that's a number that's hard to comprehend. But if you compare it to, you know, what that means per taxpayer, it's about a million dollars per taxpayer. So I think it becomes obvious that's not going to get repaid.
2: So the government has
3: a choice, I guess,
2: to cut back expenditures dramatically or to inflate away the money. And you're saying that they'll never do the first and they'll always do the second.
3: Yeah, there's actually four choices. They can, um, you know, if all goes well, you can grow your way out of it, right, if the economy is booming and so on. Number two, you can dramatically increase taxes. Um, Number three, you can cut expenditures. And number four, you can just print the money. Uh, politicians being what they are, I think it 's a fairly safe bet that they'll just print the money because that 's kind of a subtle form of, of inflation that doesn 't show up immediately
2: so in, in, in places in the uh, kind of take us back to history where politicians have done that in the past, uh, Weimar, Germany or Zimbabwe today or something what what, what typically happens?
3: Well, it's just that they start off, and one of the good references for your listeners, if they go to Wikipedia and put in hyperinflation, I think there's 50 cases in modern times of hyperinflations, and Germany wasn't the worst, believe it or not. But what happens is when you got slow growth and high expenditures, which is kind of what we have in Greece as an example, uh, then then the politicians are, you know, forced to, you know, borrow and print. Um, Greece, being part of the euro, has lost its ability to print. Um, if it was still on drachma, then you betcha they would have s- simply printed more drachma. And th- right now, that looks like one of the solutions for them is to leave the euro and be able to print, uh, uh, you know, drachmas again. So that that's typically what happens. In, and the, the more they print, the worse it becomes. But it, but it doesn't show up immediately so like right now for example um, official inflation is running at you know 2% but i don't think anybody believes that when we run seminars and we ask people what you know if they believe that inflation nobody puts up their hands if you go to to a site called shadowstats.com by a fellow called John Williams he, he has gone back to the way inflation used to be calculated. He didn't reinvent the wheel. He just went back to the, the old methodology. And, and by using the old methodology, you get 11% inflation today. So if you've got any experience, you know, grocery shopping or, you know, paying any of the bills, 11% is more realistic to a lot of people. And that's just doing it the way it was done, you know, prior to 1980 when they changed the formula.
2: And then, what's going to happen if if we're realistically at 11% today? What is your outlook for how bad inflation will get this coming, say, five years or so in the United States?
3: Well, the real risk is once you start on on this approach, after a point in time, you you can lose control, and it becomes hyperinflation, or it can become a hyperinflationary inf- stagflation, which then becomes the the worst of both worlds. I like can, unlike Germany. Where the German economy was was still growing in zimbabwe the the GDP was negative, everybody was unemployed and and you had you know ridiculous inflation so that's a hyperinflationary stagflation so that that's that's the real risk if if they don't stop it early enough but when you when you go back to the the debt ceiling debate in the in the u s last summer. It, it was clear that none of the politicians ha- had the intestinal fortitude to, to do anything in advance. I mean, you know, they couldn't agree to the debt ceiling and the super committee couldn't agree to a debt ceiling. So now we're just running you know, $1.5 trillion deficits as far as the eye can see.
2: And, and what is the role of the Federal Reserve in all this as far as printing money and uh, supplying liquidity to the markets?
3: Well, normally speaking, the, 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 the Federal Reserve, you know, manages the monetary system through, you know, in the interest rates and availability of money. And while things are going well when, say, the U.S. does a Treasury auction, then, mm-hmm. uh, then it's, it's bought up. If you get to the point where nobody buys the Treasury bills or not enough people buy the Treasury bills, the Federal Reserve prints the money and it buys the Treasury bills. But what's happened recently, since the 2008 crisis, the, the Federal Reserve has been um, essentially creating money and and buying, you know, worthless mortgages. To put it simply, uh, so they're pumping the money into the system. Right now, the inflation isn't showing up because the banks aren't aren't lending enough, so the velocity of money. Is low, but the, the creation of money is there. You need both things: the velocity of money and and new money creation. Right now, we've got new money creation, but we don't have the velocity of money. As soon as that changes, and then 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 we'll start seeing real inflation. And what would change the velocity? To have the money start turning over faster? Well, banks lending, people spending. You know, in in Germany, when when they had the hyperinflation, when people got worried about the currency as soon as they, they were paid or got money, they, they would try and get rid of it, like spend it on anything that was tangible. So that's, that's how you get the increase in velocity of money. If, if people are sitting on the money or increasing their savings, then, then the velocity reduces, like if you're hoarding money, so to speak.
2: I mean, recently, um, consumer credit has expanded, uh, loans are going up, retail sales have been stronger. I mean, we've had a long period where it wasn't, but are you seeing some evidence today that velocity is starting to pick up
3: it, it's starting to pick up like you say out of, out of those reasons but it's still not you know up to a point where or you're getting you know kind of you know, runaway inflation although you know 11 percent isn't isn't exactly low inflation
2: indeed okay all right we're going to take a break uh this is jordan goodman of the money answer show my uh, guest this hour is nick Barashev. he's the founder president and ceo of bullion management group. And we're talking about gold and precious metals. We'll be back after this.
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sanjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business.
4: it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Barashev. He's the founder, president, and CEO of Bullion Management Group. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Uh, good talking to you, Jordan. Um, so let's talk about gold as an investment. We've, we've talked about the, the coming uh, inflation, if not hyperinflation. Um, if everybody sees this coming, uh, is is gold extremely widely held, or what kind of potential is there for more people to be uh, owning gold, both individuals and institutions?
3: Well, the, even though we've had a, a 10-year... Price increased from about $250 an ounce in 1988 to the current, you know, 1700 There's very little participation in, in precious metals at this point in time um, and in terms of both the retail public as well as institutions. The retail public has less than 1% of their portfolios in precious metals. The institutions have less than 0.3% so there's a long way to go when you consider also that there is in in global financial assets is about 200 trillion now this doesn't include real estate but just paper financial assets stocks bonds mortgages etc when you compare that with with bullion there, there's about and I'm I'm just doing round numbers but it's there there's about 3 3 trillion of above ground bullion, one and a half trillion is held by the central banks. One and a half trillion is held privately. Central banks have become net buyers in, since 2009, so they're buying instead of selling for, the, for for a long time. And the privately held bullion is held largely by the world's wealthiest families, and they hold it multi-generationally and you know practically never sell it. So now you've got a situation at some point in time, part of that $200 trillion of financial assets is gonna to decide to buy some gold. So even if it's 5%, how do you divide that into the available above ground gold? Because mine supply has been in a deficit for over 10 years. So that's when you're gonna see the price spike. When institutions start coming in, in, in major amounts, and, and they will have to sooner or later, then you're going to see a massive price spike in in bullion just just from you know supply demand fundamentals. Mine um, supply is has been declining; it's not increasing, even though we've had 10 years of rising gold prices. It's it's basically been flat. So the, that's that's where the next step lies. And and usually the the thing is there's a lot of psychological factors why. You know, we as human beings do not like change and and there's issues of complacency normalcy bias cognitive dissonance where we don't adapt to change for example if we look at the the NASDAq which started its bull market in 1982 most investors didn't get in until about 1998 two years away from the crash so the same thing is happening in in bullion it's just being of a very long period, and, and usually generational. When you when you look at the previous cycle, one of the best ways to look at that is the Dow Gold ratio, which just takes the Dow divided by the gold price. So if we look at it, we find that it was about twenty to one in nineteen twenty nine. It dropped to two to one in nineteen thirty two. About went up to. 27, 28, in, in about 1965, then down to one-to-one to one in 1980, up to 44-to-one in, in 1999, and currently it's about seven-to-one. So that gives you, these are approximately 20-year cycles, and it, and it shows the massive shifts from Financial assets to gold and tangible assets. So you have to follow that to be on the right side of the curve because typically you don't live long enough for the next cycle. So if we're at seven now, what do you anticipate that going to? Uh, many experts think that it will be one to one. Now one to one can happen at ten thousand gold, ten thousand Dow. It can happen at at. Um, 5,000 gold, $5,000, 20000 so on. But one-to-one is what what the trend line looks like and what many experts that have looked at this think it's going to.
2: And you're saying the reason that that's going to happen is when this inflation starts breaking out and institutions and individuals that are vastly under-invested in gold start buying gold, there won't be enough
3: gold to go around, and that's what will the, cause the spike. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's right. Like, you know, you take 2% of, 200 million, which is 20 million, it doesn't divide very well into one, or sorry, 200 trillion. And, and you take 10% of that's 20, 20 trillion, it doesn't divide well into $1 trillion worth of currently available above ground gold, most of which is not for sale.
2: Uh-huh. How much is actually uh, liquid? How much is, is floating out there in, in, in tradable well, this, gold? Is,
3: this is bullion. I didn't count. That there's about three trillion of above-ground gold, but but um, the that, central
2: banks don't count because they hold on to it. You're saying?
3: Yeah, they well, they're buyers now. So right now, the gold price, I think, to a large extent, is being driven by central bank buying, mm-hmm. not retail or institutional buying. But what we have is is there's tri- there's an addition to the bullion. There's three trillion of above-ground gold, but but that's you know stuff in the Hermitage the the Vatican and, you know, the gold crosses and churches in South America. That's never going to become bullion. Yeah. So how much is kind of tradable bullion? Well, a, t- a total of about $3 trillion with with about $1.5 trillion um, held by the banks and $1.5 trillion held privately. I see. But I, but, okay. But, I mean, of the $1.5 trillion
2: held privately, you're saying people hold on to that for a long time. I'm trying to get what? What is available? What is somewhat liquid that is being traded to some extent of the one and a half well, trillion?
3: You can't really tell because because um, the very wealthy families, is like, you know, the Rothschilds that hold it multi-generation. It's not known how much they actually have, but yeah. it's not for sale at any price.
2: I say Okay. Very good. Okay. Um, so, uh, okay. Now I'd like to get into the different ways of uh, owning uh, gold because there are some pros and cons of different ones. Uh, before we get to physical bullion, what are the advantages and disadvantages of exchange traded funds? The GLD and the GDX are very popular these days. What are the pros
3: and cons of doing
2: an ETF?
3: Well, I think, firstly, you've got to establish, first of all, what your objectives are and, and also the level of wealth and, and so on and so forth. You know, if you've got $100 to invest, then, you know, maybe you can buy three silver coins. So it's, there's a vast difference in, in terms of that. The first place to start is not to get scammed. And as the price goes up, there's more and more scams coming onto the market. Everything from what is called leverage scams, where you want to buy bullion, they talk you into buying ten times as much with financing, and you know, most cases there's no bullion. There's fake coins. There's there's counterfeit coin scams. Um, it's it's very easy to to make a counterfeit or a fake coin right now there's, you've probably seen ads in the paper where they're selling what looks to be official you know government uh, made buffalo coins uh, for like 95 bucks and but when when you listen carefully you're, you're you're buying very thinly plated coins which have very little you know redeemable value um, so that, that's the first step. Uh, after that, the, the issue splits into two categories. One is bullion investments, and the other thing is bullion as money. And there's a lot of confusion there. If you take bullion and you hold it in a vault or in your own vault, that's, that's like holding money. And, you know, whether it's gold ounces or $100 bills – the, those aren't going to give you any interest or dividends, but they're also not going to have any counterparty risk. difference between $100 bills and gold is $100 bills are depreciating and purchasing power while gold is increasing. Once you get into investments, which are futures contracts, uh, mining stocks, ETFs, you have counterparty risks. So the issue is that, that there you, you may earn dividends in the case of mining stocks. There may be other benefits and so on, leveraged futures contracts. But you're depending on, on somebody for performance. If the counterparty fails, you lose. That doesn't happen when you've got bullion in the vault. So you have to separate those two. If you're looking for speculation and, and gain, then, and if you know what you're doing, for instance, futures options, uh, you can make a lot of money. Most people don't. 90% of the futures contracts end up worthless, and people lose 100% of their investment. But at the same time, if you're an expert or you've got an expert advisor, that's one way to make a lot of money. Gold and silver ETFs, there are two categories. There are closed-in funds that are exchange-traded, and then there's funds like the GLD and SLV that are completely differently structured, and most people haven't read the prospectuses to understand how they are. And, And although it's a complicated story, the easiest way to look at that is that in an ETF, you have an authorized participant that contributes a basket of assets to the ETF. The ETF gives them shares, then they sell the shares to the public. That's how they work. They're not like an open-end mutual fund where investors send their, their cash to the uh, fund manager and the fund manager goes and buys the bullion. Nobody buys the bullion in this case. And when, when you look through the prospectus, the, the issue becomes that in all likelihood, the only thing that makes any financial sense for the authorized participant is that it is to borrow the bullion that's contributed to the ETF.
2: So it is backed by bullion, ultimately, the ETF, are. It's just, if well, you're...
3: But it, it's, it's, for instance, if I have a leased car and I've got it parked in my garage, right? It doesn't make it my car
2: hmm
3: Okay? On the surface, it may look like I've got a nice car parked in the garage. So that's the important thing. So when you're holding bullion for wealth preservation and as a core port- portfolio holding, you want to make sure that you actually own the bullion or the entity that you're investing in actually owns the bullion. That's step number one. So that's, that's the key element. If we want to track the price of bullion and all we're doing is betting on tomorrow's price, you and I can place the bet. We don't need to own any bullion. You have to be good for the money if you lose, and I have to be good for the money if I lose. But we don't need any bullion. So the ETFs are established to be tracking vehicles. They do a very good job for, for sophisticated traders. They have options in terms of both puts and calls that are easier to deal than the futures markets if you're sophisticated and know what you're doing. But that, that's the intent. It's not the same as actually owning the bullion.
2: Okay, we're gonna take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Nick Barashef. He's founder, president, and CEO of Bullion Management Group. We're talking about gold. And we'll be back after this.
4: The boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: Tune in for What About Wealth every week to learn the vital answers to your questions about creating wealth, investing it, donating it, and protecting it. Your hosts are Rich Bloomfield and Rick Durfee, who explain the principles that govern wealth in terms you can understand. Building and preserving positive wealth requires correct action, but few people know how wealth really works. Listen every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and find the answers you need about wealth.
1: together in conversations that make a difference right here on the voice america business channel every friday morning at 10 a.m pacific standard time
4: voice america business network the bottom line in business
1: You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Barashev. He's founder, president, and CEO of Bullion Management Group. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Good to be back. Uh, so now, if you want to own physical bullion, uh, let's go into the different ways you can do that. And tell me a little bit about what Bullion Management Group does that might be different from other bullion dealers.
3: Well, our founding philosophy is we don't, you know, we don't compromise the attributes of bullion. So that, that has a couple of aspects to it. One is that if you own physical bullion, the first thing is liquidity. Bullion trades 24-7 all over the world. And the physical bullion is traded by the London Bullion Market Association. In, Lon- in London, they've been in place for 300 years. The, the daily volume, the, the daily turnover is about $37 billion. The volume is estimated at five to seven times that amount. So you've got you know, a, a very high level of liquidity as far as bullion is concerned. That's one of the main attributes. The second attribute is when you're investing in bullion, you want to make sure there's no counterparty risk and there's no dependence on management. Because, again, as the saying goes, bullion is not, you know, it's independent of anybody's ability to perform, and it's not anybody else's liability. You want to keep it that way. So whether it's our funds or our bars, we go to, to you know, extreme Efforts, and we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with legal fees to ensure that first and foremost we have title and our clients have title to the bullion if if they're buying bars. That's often omitted. To have title, you have to have documents that identify the bar by refiner, serial number, exact weight, and exact purity. If you don't have that, You'll have a, t- a tough time proving your ownership to a trustee in bankruptcy if your custodian happens to fail. So are lying. you concerned that
2: that may happen? Is this a realistic uh, fear that uh, people who think they have gold in a vault somewhere don't aren't able to get their
3: hands on them in case of uh, something like that? Well, people didn't think it was a particularly you know large concern until 2008. And, and when we saw the level of major banks that failed or were bailed out, then it becomes a different concern. And the purpose of holding bullion is to be outside the financial system. So you don't want to get caught up in a, in a paper proxy of bullion. We have a, sa- you know, a saving uh, that um, when one of our business development guys came up with is, is that, that in case of a fire, do you want a real fire extinguisher, or a picture of a fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's kind so, of the same thing.
2: Now, are you doing both bullion coins and bars, or how would, people, how would you recommend people go between coins and bars amongst the coins? Are you talking about American Eagles or Canadian leaves or Krugerrands? What kind of coins would you recommend? Well,
3: I, I think that you know, unless you're an expert collector, you you want to buy what are bullion coins. So they're you know American Eagles, Cougar Ends, Canadian Maple Leafs, because they have very little in terms of numismatic premium. Um, so so that's your your core holding. So even if you're you're very wealthy and and you have tens of millions in allocated storage of bars, it's still a good idea to have. A certain amount of, say, silver coins, um, you know, for for kind of ultimate emergencies and in in, the, in terms of you know the society functioning and the financial system functioning, this is insurance that you know you you don't pay for goes up in value. So take whatever you can afford, buy silver coins. So that that's kind of difference. And for for people that want a good understanding of this, we have a report on our website um, that they can download for free. And it's just called howtobuygoldreport.com. And it's a lengthy report that that discusses these points in, in detail and discusses the different attributes. Uh, because there isn't any one in, you know, one form of bullion investment that's it's suitable. It depends on, on your wealth, your, your objectives, and so on. And in a lot of cases, it makes sense to, to mix several varieties.
2: Yeah, uh, Let's talk about silver a minute. What, what is the Silver has other industrial uses. It's not as pure a hedge and a, a precious metal. What, what are the reasons we'd want to invest some in silver and not put it all in
3: gold? Well, First of all, sil- silver has a longer history of being money than, than gold has, and it was always considered the, the money of the common people, where gold was the money of kings. And, and so you have the same kind of history, the same kind of attributes as silver, and to a lesser extent, platinum. Platinum was money in, in uh, Tsarist Russia for over 300 years. So they all have attributes of being monetary metals as well as, as industrial commodities, silver has probably the most industrial uses that are growing, you know, all the time. The interesting thing about silver is that its price in the inelastic as far as demand is concerned. And what I mean by that is that let's say there's 5 cents worth of silver in your cell phone and if the silver price goes from 3 bucks to 300 and you know your cell phone goes up to 50 cents, it's not going to really make a difference in your purchasing decisions of the cell phone. But at the same time, you can't make the cell phone without silver. So as, as a result, in as, as most cases, as commodities go up, the price of commodities go up, the demand goes down. But it's not the case in silver, because most of the applications are electronic, but there's only a minute amount of silver in computers, cell phones, whatever. But they, they can't you know, make those products without silver. The same thing applies that it's inelastic to supply. And the reason for that is 70% of, of the silver supply is byproduct supply from un, other mining activities, copper, zinc, lead, gold, and you have a little bit of byproduct silver. Only thirty percent of the silver production comes from pure silver mines. So again, if if you're one of the big, you know, copper companies, and you're producing thousands and thousands of tons of copper, and the silver price, you know, doubles, quadruples, whatever, you're, you're not going to increase your copper production just to get some more silver. So as the price goes up, it doesn't affect. Supply either, so that's a very unusual set of conditions. At the same time, most of the silver that that has ever been above ground, in, including you know the silver stolen from the Mayans and so on and so forth, is now gone. You know, it's unlike gold. You know, you have most of the gold. There's about 150,000 tons of above ground gold, but. In the case of silver, most of it is being consumed, and it hasn't been economic to recover it. Like, nobody's going to try and get the five cents of silver out of your phone. So that, that's been, you know... The,
2: so, the, so the supply of silver has gone down, you're saying?
3: Well, the supply has been rel- relatively even, but I'm saying that, the, that, that the, neither supply or demand are influenced by price. Yeah. So, uh, and okay, so what is the... kind of very unusual? So, at you know, silver has outperformed you know gold and platinum uh, during this cycle by a considerable amount, and will probably continue to do so. There's also the fact that the gold-silver ratio is is at one of its lowest levels. Um, in in 1980, for example, the gold-silver ratio was about 16 to one. Under the U.S. Coinage Act, it's a, it's, it was a 16 to 1, and geologically, the amount of silver to gold in the ground is 16 to 1. Now, it's not to say that's a definitive ratio, but right now the ratio is over 50 to 1. So as the price of gold rises, the indications are that silver will rise more.
2: So again, how would you plant? Would you do uh, coins or bars? What would be the best way to play silver?
3: Again, it depends on, on your wealth. If, if you've got $100 to spend, you'd, you'd buy. If you're U.S., you might as well just buy American Eagles. If you've got $10 million to spend, you need to buy a lot of you know bars. So we, we don't do the coins. Uh, there's, there's lots of places to buy coins. But we do provide high net worth investors with the ability to buy bars and keep it in allocated storage.
2: Okay, and then how about platinum? Uh, platinum, is, is, uh, as you said, it's had some monetary use in the past, but it also has industrial uses. Uh, what is the outlook for that as far as a, a monetary metal to offset the inflation you're talking about coming?
3: Well, they, when you look at them, they, they've all, you know, performed uh, admirably during this period. You know, with with the with the rise in, in prices, and and it's you know basically applies to most commodities. So. As as you get you know this this excess currency creation, the commodity prices will go up across the board. But platinum, uh, its main industrial use is for catalytic converters. Um, now platinum or palladium can be used for gasoline engines, but for diesel engines you can only use platinum. Now diesel isn't a big deal in North America, but diesel is is the primary type of engine that's used in most of the rest of the world so that that's a that's a factor in in terms of you know the growth of uh, the automobile industry in the rest of the world and that's where the growth right now is happening China's outpaced u uh, s auto sales recently and so on but the the real issue on platinum. As a potential supply problem, unlike gold and silver that's found all over the world. Eighty percent of the platinum reserves and production are from South Africa. Fifteen percent are from Russia. And, and the remaining five percent is the rest of the world. Any kind of a disruption in either South Africa or Russia, and you'll see the platinum price soaring from a supply problem point of view. So that, that's where, ultimately, you know, platinum can, can potentially generate higher performance than, than either gold or silver if anything happens.
2: And do you expect uh, that that might happen? Has that happened in the past where there's been supply disruptions on platinum?
3: Yeah, it's happened a few years ago. There were, there were problems in terms of the electrical grid and electrical supply in South Africa. So what you saw is an unusual phenomenon where the South African mining companies were took a, a, a very big hit in terms of their share price during this period, while the price of platinum went up to over two thousand bucks a few years ago. So that that's, that gives you a taste of what could happen if if there's any kind of of disruption.
2: So again, but if there were not a disruption. Uh, and supply from those two places continued you see platinum going up slowly not spiking as much as uh, silver and gold
3: yeah if, if you just kind of went along normally um you, you would keep going and until we get to the point where where it becomes difficult to buy gold in which case you know investors would switch to silver and platinum because they they still do the same fundamental attributes as, as in you know tangible asset to protect in, in in high inflation. Very good.
2: Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Nick Barashev. He's founder, president, and CEO of Bullion Management Group. And we're talking about gold, silver, and platinum. We'll be back after this.
4: America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. G.? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters with Dr. G airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? The business community's first choice in internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Nick Barashev. He's founder, president, and CEO of Bullion Management Group. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Glad to be back. Um, Tell us uh, the website and how people can reach uh, Bullion Management Group.
3: Uh, Our website is bmgbullion.com. And we also have a blog that then is simply, instead of www, it's blog.bmgbullion.com. And you'll find a lot of materials there. Um, people can see my uh, recent speech at the Empire Club, which is on YouTube as well uh There's numerous articles that I've written over the years, so uh they they can you know get as much educated as as they can take um, The reason i we we did all this because what I typically recommend to investors that are not knowledgeable and buoyant is to just start with 10% which you know gives you a diversified portfolio to begin with in, in a minimal amount and then educate yourself about the state of the economy, the state of affairs and and depending on your personal position you decide what's what's appropriate uh, as an allocation.
2: One country well several countries that have been buying a lot of gold uh, China, on uh, in India, a lot of the big Asian countries, both central banks and individuals there. What kind of potential demand do you see out of Asia for gold?
3: Well, right, right now, India and China account for something like two-thirds of annual gold production just from those two countries. And China has become a, a big importer of gold, even though they're the number one producer of gold now. Like the, South Africa is like number four. Uh, so it's quite a quite a shift and it's quite a shift in that the the Chinese government on national television is, is recommending that their their citizens, you know, buy gold and that that they should have at least five percent in gold. So which is quite a contrast to, you know, what what you'd say in, in the United States or Europe.
2: So what what is gonna be the long term impact of gold of continuing accumulation
3: From China and India. Well, that that's where the amount of gold that that China really needs to get up to ten percent is something like six thousand tons. Um, And when you consider that the annual production is about twenty five hundred tons, you know that 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 could be like several years of entire global gold production to get anywhere near that. The problem becomes for, for entities like China and India, Russia, the the other countries that need to increase the gold reserves, is that they have to, you know, go into the market very carefully because if they go in too aggressively, you know, they'll be chasing the price up. And that's that's where we run the risk is when when institutions, you know, pension plans, insurance companies decide that they need to allocate even five percent to, to bullion. That the price is going to skyrocket. Yeah. Okay. Um,
2: some people have said that the uh, the dollar is doomed as the world reserve currency. Do you think that's likely? And and would gold become the new currency or a basket of currencies if, if the holders of dollars are not happy uh, with the printing of money? What do you think is going to happen as far as world reserve currencies?
3: Well, first of all, as far as the the, the world reserve currency. The, the, these discussions are being held at levels like the BIS and Bank of International Settlements and the IMF. Um, so these, these trial discussions are, are being floated, and they're looking how to, you know, how to create it with, you know, uh, IMF drawing rights, um, you know, basket of currencies, gold, and so on. Uh, but if you, if you recall back when, when the euro was started, it, it was started with supposedly 15% gold backing to give it credibility and so on, and that, that seemed to have been quickly forgotten. So it's, it's a real difficult transition, and although there's you know, many people talking about how it would improve things, the, the you know, intellectual political will just isn't there. Um, you know, all all the university professors in economics and so on—they're they're, they're all Keynesians and and they're they're not supportive of going back to any kind of gold-backed currency. So, I don't think that'll happen without a crisis.
2: If that were to happen, what would that? How would that affect the price of gold if we were to go back? Even not just a gold standard directly, but gold is part of a, a basket of currencies of some type.
3: Well, there's various people that have that have looked at it. Even if you take like different uh, um, measures of U.S. money supply, whether it's you know M1, M2, M3, you get numbers anywhere from ten to twenty thousand know, dollars an ounce for gold. And and it's not that the price of gold is is so high, but it's you know dividing the currency in, into the amount of gold. The, the the simple way to look at it is. If you want to look at the gold inflation rate, which is mine supply, it's only running at about 2% a year for for decades and decades. So you just compare that to the inflation rate in, in terms of currency creation, and you get the difference in price.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of currency creation, you're saying?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. uh, like I say, we we've gone from about eight hundred billion in nineteen seventy one, um, and depending on what what measure of currency you use, but um, you know I think M two is something like fifteen trillion today, um, where where the amount of above ground gold, you know, in, in terms of percentage increase, is nowhere close to that.
2: I'd like to get a sense of your long term forecast here, not just about the price of gold, but what's going to happen with the economy. My understanding is you're saying all this money creation is eventually going to create higher inflation and then hyperinflation. And then at a certain point, you reach a breaking point and you get a collapse of society, a total depression in the world. I, I, I'm putting that my words in your mouth, but I'd like to get kind of the long-term scenario that you're, you're painting here.
3: Well, the, the issue that this is just looking at history, if, if you look at currencies, um, you know, in, in, in unbacked paper currencies, I mean, they were started by the first paper currency was in China, I think, in 300 B.C. Um, but every, every, every currency experiment, paper currency experiment, failed. Um, we've now got a global paper currency experiment based on a paper reserve currency. That's never happened before. So the vulnerabilities are much higher. Like for instance, when Germany had a hyperinflation, it was limited to Germany. Um, you know, if if you came into Germany with you know British pounds or American dollars, you you, you can you know buy anything you wanted. Uh, but in this case, if if we have a hyperinflation in the U.S. dollar, that's going to be global. So that that's where the one concern lies. Uh, but the the, in, in simple terms, I guess the, the problem with paper currencies is that no king, emperor, politician, prime minister, president, once you give him a printing press, he can resist using it. Okay? That's just human nature, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened again and again and again. Uh, so it just doesn't work. And, and but You're uh, saying
2: at a certain point. Uh, people are not willing to accept the printed dollars anymore, and that's when you get the collapse. That's what happened in Weimar Germany, that's what happened in
3: Zimbabwe, and then that's when people want to go into hard assets. Is that what you're saying? And then, so then the people that were in hard assets uh, do well. It's, it's not that you, know, you, you, you may... Like in Germany, for instance, an ounce of gold was 75 marks an ounce in 1921, and in, in 1923, it was 23 trillion marks an ounce. <laughs> okay, but you know, a loaf of bread was a trillion marks. You know, but you're you're better off if you had gold than marks. It, it preserved your purchasing power, is what you're saying. That's right, and and so, so that that's the first step. And this is where I get back in in terms of what kind of gold. Like, if if you have little wealth and maybe you're more dependent on speculation and trying to invest in a way to grow your wealth, if you've got a hundred million dollars, you just want to make sure. That 100000000 million doesn't vaporize into thin air. But yeah, so two right. different objectives.
2: Okay. Okay, well, we've had a very interesting interview. Uh, my guest this hour has been uh, Nick Beresha. Uh, he's founder, president, and CEO of Bullion Management Group. And you've had quite an education here on the uh, outlook for inflation and gold and silver and platinum. So thanks very much for being on the Money Answer Show,
3: Nick. My pleasure. And again, if people want to learn more, they just go to our website. There's, there's tons of material there if, if um, they're interested in learning more. Very good. Well, thanks so much to Nick. And
2: uh, that's the end of this Money Answer show. And we'll be back with another edition next week. Goodbye for now.